If you'd like to turn to the passage this morning, it's found on page 877 in the Blue Bible. That's either in your chair or the pew. That's Luke 18, verse 9, verses 9 through 14. Should have a, a sheet that was handed out. You can see on one side of the sheet the flow of the parable. Uh, just to take note of that, maybe help you a little bit to see how uh, the parable is framed uh, in terms of its uh, literary structure. But then on the back, uh, we'll be using that sermon outline uh, that you see laid out. <laughs> All right, let's read then verses 9 through 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us that we will understand your word, that we will be gripped and transformed by your word, that we will believe in the great mercy of God. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. In the movie Wonder Woman, we're introduced to a great colorful cast of characters. There's Diana herself, who the, the goddess who will later become Wonder Woman. There's Steve Trevor, the main human hero, who early on plunges through the secret veil that keeps the Amazon island hidden. And while there, he reveals uh, General Eric Ludendorff's uh, terrible plan to launch this new chemical weapon that will wipe out who knows how many people. Created by uh, the evil Dr. Uh, Maru, who is known as Dr. Poison. She, Diana, immediately recognizes Dr. Ludendorff or General Ludendorff must be Ares, the god of war, and she must kill him. So Diana and and Steve Trevor make it to London. They meet uh, uh, Patrick uh, or they meet with uh, Sir Patrick Morgan, who's a politician, and he's working for uh, to negotiate a peace with with Germany. And when Steve Trevor fails to convince the leaders of, of England 
England's military about the danger of Dr. I'm sorry, General Ludendorff. Uh, Diana's just incensed, but he assures her, Steve does, that we're going to get to the front and you're going to get at General Ludendorff. So they go to a bar and they get some comrades together to help them get to the front. There's Samir and there's Charlie and there's the, um, the chief. And as they're discussing and plotting, uh, Sir Patrick Morgan shows up and he says, I'm sorry I'm late. What are you talking about? Finds out about the plot. And to, to Steve Trevor's surprise, he didn't try to stop them. He funds the mission. He gives them money. And he says, my own office can be the base for your communication. So a lot happens, but we come to the end of the movie. They finally get to the front. They finally get to, do, uh, to General, why do I keep saying doctor? To General Ludendorff's uh, base of operations where a plane is now about to be launched to drop these horrible poison bombs. Uh, and there Ludendorff is in the uh, office that overlooks the base. She confronts him there. He breathes in this uh, monster strength gas that uh, Dr. Poison has provided. And he becomes this superhuman being and he fights Diana in this great struggle. And she finally slays him with her sword. Ares is dead. No, he's not. Because that wasn't Ares. And she realizes the war is still going. She's confused. And she looks back up into the office. And there is Sir Patrick Morgan. He is Ares. The guy that funded their mission. And of course they have this incredible battle that lights up the screen. And you have to go see it yourself. Even though I've just spoiled it for you. So there's this amazing surprise ending. It was the man you didn't expect. That is exactly how this parable would have affected these people that heard it. Because it was spoken to these people who were righteous and held others in contempt. They were just like this Pharisee. They thought just like this Pharisee. They would have cheered him on through the parable. He was their hero. They detested the tax collector. He was disgusting to them. And that's why Jesus says, I tell you. It's as though he's saying, don't miss this. It's not what you expect. This is the man who went down justified, not the Pharisee. So we start here with just laying out some of the setting. First, just the social setting here. Uh, it'd probably be better to translate this not uh, tax collector, but toll collector, because that's how they operated. They had tax offices on all the major roads, and you had to pay customs when you were carrying or carting things. Nobody likes for people to look through your stuff, Right. And then to pay a toll on it. And, of course, they can make up anything they want. They can charge anything they want. And, of course, they would tend to do that. There was so much corruption. And people knew it. Plus, they're working for the Roman Empire, which they hated. And so where the Pharisees were the respectful and respectable and outwardly religious class, the toll collectors were vile. 
degraded. As one rabbi declared, as one robber disgraces his whole family, so one toll collector degrades a family. Promises were not to be kept with murderers, thieves, and toll collectors. Or another statement, the synagogue alms box and the temple korban must not receive their alms. They're not allowed to give testimony in court. That's what they thought of toll collectors. So that's the social setting here of these two men entering into this temple. And then we need to understand a little bit about the worship setting. To go to the temple to pray wasn't just to go for private prayer. It meant to go to public worship service. That's how they would describe to go to prayer. And it's likely the daily sacrifice. So the priest would go in to burn incense representing the prayers of the people as they stand outside and pray. And then after the burning of the incense, he would pronounce the blessing on the people with his outstretched arms, proclaiming God's name upon them. And then the lamb would be offered up in sacrifice, burned up. And the fire represents God's accepting of that sacrifice. That would be their sign of fellowship with God. But the important thing to notice, this was a public worship time in which these prayers were offered. They went up to, per, to worship and they went away from worship. That's the basic action. So that's the setting that we have here. And so laying out the setting, we come first to the prayer of the Pharisee, right? He stands by himself to avoid becoming unclean, which could happen even if he brushes against the clothing of someone less holy. This physical isolation, you see, would even in his mind be an important statement of just how clean and separate he is. Oh, Look, look how holy he's separate. Jewish practice also was to pray out loud. And so he basically is preaching to those around him as he prays out loud. They get to see and hear what a holy man is like. And then aware of the tax collector, he actually attacks him in prayer. Now, some of you have heard this. But many haven't. I was praying with a couple of friends uh, years ago, and I'll use the name Sheila so that the innocent will be protected. <clears throat> and my friend, we were just the three of us praying. We we're on our knees. We we're praying in this room. And my friend starts his prayer this way. Oh, Lord, I pray for Sheila. She was on a tear this morning. <laughs> yeah. You imagine we have our morning prayer, you know, where we all exalt and praise God. Praise the Lord for this. I praise you that. I pray for Sheila. She was on a tear this morning. You know, just horrible, right? In front of everybody. That's what's happening here. The tax collector being called out by the Pharisee in front of everybody. He didn't know him. In his own self-righteousness, he's just assessing him and judging him and attacking him openly at worship. And of course, the self-righteous people who are listening to this, the ones to whom he's speaking, they're eating it up. They think this is great. 
This is the way they would handle it. They're shaking their heads. Yes, yes. But you see this giant hole in his prayer, don't you? There's no sense of sin or need before God. There's not even one petition. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. He has it together. And here's a phrase to remember. True thanksgiving, because he gives thanks. True thanksgiving is always accompanied with humility. Thanksgiving and humility, they go together. It's the humble, the broken, the helpless that recognize the goodness of God. So that's, in short, the prayer of the Pharisee. Then the prayer of the tax collector. He stands apart, not because he thinks he'll be contaminated, but because he knows his own heart is contaminated. Think of the difference. You see, the accepted posture for prayer was to cross your arms and uh, keep the eyes downcast, but he beats his chest. It's dramatic. This never happens in the Old Testament. And it only happens with women at funerals. No man does this. But this man does it. And why? As one 11th century commentator says, his heart in his chest was the source of all his evil thoughts. So he was beating it as evidence of his pain, as some people do in their grief. The heart is struck as though this is the center of his personal life. This is the center of his sin. And it's also the sign of the stroke of judgment that he deserves. So before God, I am the sinner. Have mercy upon me. I deserve your judgment. And he prays for one thing, God's mercy. But it is an honor to God's mercy in the face of his own personal sinfulness with no good at all in himself. He prays that he might have mercy. He prays that he might stand in God's favor. You imagine praying that you think, and of course, these self-righteous people, you haven't got a chance. You're, You're bringing nothing to the table. All you're doing is belching forward all your sin, but you expect to stand in God's favor. Yes, he is entrusting himself to God's mercy and favor. And this word for mercy is also the regular word word for atonement. In the Old Testament, the translation of that word, the day of atonement, is the day of mercy. Or the mercy seat is, is this word. It, and so, in this, this ties up, this ties with the setting of worship, you see, where it is. And the offering up of the lamb for atonement. And so, you can hear him just saying, oh God, let this be an atonement for me. I'm the sinner. You see, helplessly entrusting him to God, himself to God, that God would make atonement for him. Have mercy on me. I'm the sinner. And this shows so beautifully what true sacrifice meant. 
Because David said in Psalm 51, you don't delight in burnt offering. The, the sacrifice you desire is a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifice expresses our need as sinners. We, th- there must be a death on our behalf. There must be one that bears our sin away from us. And so we come with brokenness. We come with a contrite heart. That's what God's looking for in the sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice. To be sacrificing, it's the heart. And as one early commentator says, the false pride of the Pharisee has intensified his guilty condition and increased his sin. In the midst of the sacrifice of sin, he's basically advertising his goodness. Well, the prayer of the toll collector, the prayer of the Pharisee, and the result, of course, the toll collector is the one that leaves under God's favor, Jesus says. That's the great surprise ending. That's the turnaround here. It is the toll collector who's accepted. And the word exalted there in verse 14 means exalted into fellowship with God. See, isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? Exalted into fellowship with God, into the favor and acceptance of God. And so that word carries with it the meaning of being delivered and rescued and redeemed, caught up into the favor of God. Exaltation means being drawn near to God. Only God can exalt a person into his presence. You try to exalt yourself into God's presence based upon your accomplishments and your sufficiency, it will never happen. So the Pharisee went away from worship not in the favor of God because he who exalts himself will be humbled. And of course, it's because the Pharisee doesn't see his need of God's mercy that he shows no mercy to the toll collector. Religious people can be nasty and hateful and petty and bitter and boastful and arrogant and harsh and unforgiving and impatient and exasperated. Religious people are really good at that. But forgiveness, forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ, recognizing my sinfulness, but the, the accomplish of Jesus dying for my sins, bearing away the wrath of God from me, that's the foundation of our fellowship for each other. As we become the tax collector, we, we more and more cease judging one another. We begin to, un, to offer one another the same love and forgiveness that we have been offered, that we have experienced. We bear with one another. We're patient with one another because we all are tax collectors. We all cry out with him, have mercy on me, the sinner. And so, 
The takeaway, I've included here the first uh, confession that we have when we stand before the congregation or that's read to you when you meet with the elders. And I just included it so that you could see how much this is based on this parable of the tax collector. Do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God? Have mercy on me, the sinner, justly deserving his displeasure. There he is beating his chest as a symbol of the judgment that he deserves. Without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Have mercy on me, the sinner. And so I have these questions. Have you come to the place where you make no excuses for your sin before God? You begin to believe this is such a God of mercy. And of course, he knows my heart inside and out. It's such a God of mercy. I can unload everything in his presence. I can tell him exactly how bad I am that nobody else even knows. But I can talk to him. I can confess who I am before this God. Have you come to the place where you don't depend on your own goodness as a reason why God should accept you? Not bringing anything in your hand, not referring to, I'm better than this person. At least I've done that. Oh, but I... No. Notice, the toll collector brings nothing. All he brings is his sinfulness into the presence of God. Do you see it? Just bring your sinfulness. And that means, as a parallel to this, that if I don't trust in my goodness, I'm trusting in God's goodness. And I'm trusting in the goodness of Christ, what he has accomplished, not anything I could ever accomplish. That was the turnaround for me in my life. And you've heard me say it before, but when I there trying to construct a righteousness that would be acceptable to God, and I pictured it like this, God just sweeps it all off the table, shocking me. And he puts on the table the righteousness of Jesus and says, I'll deal with you based on that goodness, that righteousness. You talk about a relief. (laughs) For my whole life, I'd prayed the Lord's Prayer every night before I went to sleep, just in case I died that night and I'd go to hell. That's the way I thought. And to hear that I could be received on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not my own. That's good news. (laughs) That is good news. And then these two questions follow up to get further into... To try to weed out all those uh, cobwebs and, and dirty places where we want to stick our own righteousness in or we think that God is still holding something over us. Do you come to God as you are right in the midst of your failures and sins and rest in his mercy alone? And then are you confident that God will receive you completely, embrace you with joy And pour out his goodness into your life day by day. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be in the favor of God. Not God relegating you to some back room in his house or out the back door. Stay out there like a a dog you don't want in much, you know. 
We picture things like that. I know the Lord is going to let me go to heaven, but I know he wants to keep his distance from me. And I know he's displeased with me most days and doesn't smile at me hardly ever. That is not faith in Christ. Do you believe that he receives you completely, embraces you with joy, and he pours out his goodness into your life day by day? To believe in God's constant goodness towards you. That's to believe in the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. In the favor that he has exalted you to because you've helplessly fallen before him to receive his forgiveness. And I want you to pull out, if you will, the hymns that are there in the bottom of that back page. And I would like for us to read this together as we come to the Lord's table. These hymn writers have captured so wonderfully this approach of the toll collector to God. And I want you to join me as we read each one of them. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. We sang this just last week. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my wanting, and into thy wealth, out of my sin, and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. And I want to underscore, this isn't just your first step into relationship with Christ. It's now your life with Christ. It's your daily life with Christ. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, he said, keep repenting and believing in the good news. It's a life of living in the mercy of God. It's a life of always recognizing that I am under your mercy and your favor by your grace alone. Praise God. That is our glorious life in him.